It can often feel like a victory to have made it through the first day, so congratulations. It's not over yet, but... I always feel this time, you know, the end of the first day of a retreat, it always occurs to me, as maybe it does now for some of you, like, why do I ever let my practice go? The, the practice itself isn't hard. The hard part is, you know, having allowed some seeds to take root and to grow, and then showing up on retreat and realizing, you know, the nature of the garden is full of weeds and uh, it's not a very pleasant place to be awake. You know, it's not a very pleasant place to feel into. And this beautiful, even at times fierce compassion, you know, goes to work to water some different seeds, the seeds of awareness, the seeds of forgiveness, the seeds of patience. And uh, it's not so much that it's hard work as it is that the momentum of habit is a force to be reckoned with. You know, the torments of the mind, the hindrances of the mind, and the tug to follow to act on the hindrances, to act on sense desire and to act on that experience of dullness and to act on restlessness and to act on aversion and doubt. That tug is really strong. So even though there may be some wisdom that recognizes, you know, indulging these hindrances is not the way, it takes a real resolve, a real force in the mind not to go down those well-greased pathways, you know, doing what we always do and getting the results <coughs> we always have been getting, which is more agitation, more tightness in the mind and body, more distractedness, being lost in thought. So it's a really, these first few days of retreat, it's a really ripe time because we see the, so clearly the karmic fruits of having lived the way we've lived. You know, the kind of choices, the kind of seeds we've, been, we've planted and watered over the last you know, months, years, whatever. And then you get a mind, a body like this. And even if you've been pretty skillful at home over the last months or whatever. Part of the fruit of being living a skillful, wholesome life, practicing in a very continuous way, even when you're not on retreat, is you see the more subtle work that needs to be done. That's really, it's not like we don't see work, we see more work that needs to be done because the mind is more balanced, more peaceful, more clear. It's like if we asked everybody to wear, you know, very white clothing on the retreat, we would notice, you know, every smudge, every little, we were talking about the nice bite-sized pieces of lettuce. Some of you were the veggie choppers today. And uh, when the, the lettuce is a little too big, you know, just a spray of salad dressing gets on your clothes. And we'd be much more aware if we were wearing really white clothing. And it's the same thing when our mind is really peaceful, balanced, free of greed, anger, and delusion. Then we notice very quickly when the mind picks up, starts down some pathway toward ill will or toward greediness, wanting, thinking that if only then I'd be really even more happy. Or if only, then I would lock in the happiness that I have. But these little, initially little movements of the mind would be noticed as a kind of 
contamination, like, oh, honey, this isn't, this isn't the direction I want to go. Some of you have seen, and I believe we'll be putting out some of these books for your, to support your practice from Amsaida Utejani. And one of his earlier books is something like, don't look down upon the, the defilements, right? These torments of mind, these hindrances, because, right, why shouldn't we look down on them? Because the, the very nature of the hindrances, these tendencies of the mind towards distraction, towards greed, towards ill will, they, there's a built-in feedback mechanism. And the Buddha used a very graphic image. I mean, I think we could make a really good horror film out of this image, even though it sort of comes from the natural world, but, you know, in the tropics, and even in, you know, places like here, we have it in the woods in Minnesota, these vines. But I guess in the tropics, I think it's related to the fig family, if I'm not mistaken, and there's a very interesting, in this sutta, uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi, in his translation of this particular discourse of the Buddha, has a footnote where he goes into a little bit of the biology of these plants, these vines that grow on big tropical trees. And, uh, you know, they're smart in a way, these plants. They have delicious berries that the birds eat and they poop, right? And they, they'll poop even right on the branches of the trees. And the vine will just start growing there in the moist air without even being in the soil, but it will drop the roots down through the air until it hits the soil. And over the years, these vines slowly envelop the trees. And eventually, evidently, at some point, you don't even see any part of the original tree because it's been completely enveloped by the vine, taken over by the vine. And that's the image, that's the analogy the Buddha uses for the hindrances, these enveloping tendencies of our mind. And we really see this on retreat. We see how some seemingly innocent beginning, you know, like noticing somebody's really cool sandals and uh, how they seem to be really snug for these different you know, difficult trails, yet allow the feet to breathe, and they look good. Right? And, and the mind just starts to... And then even if you sort of resolve, like, oh yeah, when I get home, I'll get up here. The fact that the greed has been revved up, the mind is immediately starting to look, well, yeah, that will be really nice when I get those. But like, what else would make my life better? Because the mind is already in that mode. And it just goes on and on and on until usually the mind, the weight of that activity, if we're fortunate, wakes up mindfulness. Mindfulness reemerges, recognizes the cumulative tension from having been wanting, and wonders does it have to be this way? Is this the direction the heart is interested in going? And the obvious answer is no. And wisdom, if it's there, will understand, well, maybe I can just be aware, recognize that this heaviness of heart or this tightness of the body or this contraction is something being known. It's just this experience being known. Right? Instead of not wanting to feel, and so we continue the cycle. That's that enveloping quality because the hindrances, all of the forces of distraction, they're stressful. And it's exactly the stressfulness of our worrying and our planning and our judging and our comparing and our fantasizing. It's precisely the stress of it, the contracting effect of it, that keeps us in the juicy part because the alternative is to be aware, oh, it feels like this now. That sort of honest 
recognition of the karmic fruit of having been lost in thought for 10 minutes or two hours or, you know, whatever it's been. It's really hard to realize that I'm willing to receive my karmic fruit now rather than dig the hole deeper. And just to settle into that experience. So tonight I want to talk about this dance between our deepening understanding of awareness practice and that which arises to interrupt or block or undermine awareness practice. And uh, you'll find in the text, you know, a lot of warrior metaphors for this dance. But, you know, they, those, that uh, way of understanding, like there's something we're at war with. You know, the good forces of the mind are at war with the bad forces of the mind. That may not be helpful. Maybe at times it certainly looks like a struggle, a war. But the more we understand awareness practice, the more we appreciate the power, the transforming power of awareness itself. So it's not like we have to go do battle with the force of habit, which is often how we initially think about awareness practice or this path the Buddha taught, that, oh yeah, I've got some bad habits and I have to, you know, basically train some troops, some mental qualities to get in there and uh, yeah, teach them a lesson. <laughs> and, you know, we end up doing this. I mean, we learn a lot by making this mistake, like fighting the mind. The mind fighting the mind makes things, makes the mind a mess. It's tightening, contracting, But it isn't enough, often, usually it's not enough to hear that. You know, we need to spend a good part of many retreats just wondering, well, maybe I'm just not fighting the battle right. But there's some truth to it. I mean, it's not like the alternative of just letting the force of habit have its way. I mean, clearly that's not going to help. So it's appropriate to recognize what the force of habit in our minds, not all of our habits, but a lot of our habits are really have the flavor of greediness and ill will and, you know, wanting to be disconnected or distracted or not here, not in the moment, not aware. And so they have to be addressed. And this is where mindful awareness comes in. As the Buddha says at the beginning of the Satipatthana Sutta, this discourse on the four foundations of mindfulness, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and distress, for the attainment of the right method and for the realization of unbinding. In other words, the four foundations of mindfulness. Which four? He goes on to talk about mindfulness of body, mindfulness of the mind, which involves mindfulness of feeling tone, mindfulness of the quality of mind, the development of mind, like how quiet, how stable the mind is, and mindfulness of these maps, like the map of the wholesome qualities called the seven factors of awakening, and mindfulness of the hindrances, I just understand like how is the wholesomeness of the mind? Is it wholesome? Is it stable? Is it capable of seeing the way things are? There's a lot, I think, in human history where human beings have realized time and time again, that something that is very simple and seemingly not much of anything 
can be quite powerful. Some of you maybe know this passage from the Tao Te Ching. It's quite well known, this text, ancient text in Taoism. And it goes like this, the weakest thing in the world can overmatch the strongest things. The weakest things in the world can overmatch the strongest things in the world. Nothing in the world can be compared to water for its weak and yielding nature. Yet in overcoming the hard and the strong, nothing proves better than it, for there is no alternative to it. The weak can overcome the strong and the yielding can overcome the hard. This all the world knows, but does not practice. So this is a nice, I think, a nice simile for mindful awareness, which seems weak. You know, if we were, I'm I'm sure some of you are therapists or psychiatrists or psychologists or coaches, you know, and if you were to tell somebody, like, Kamala and I do, you know, you know, that's just something being known. Can you recognize this is just something being known? That the knowing, this quality of the mind, is knowing this experience. And, you know, people who are in a difficult, having a difficult time, they would say, and then what? <laughs> or there's got to be more to it. But there's something about this continuity of awareness. Instead of getting obsessed with the object of one's experience, to really understand that it's something being known. It's a pleasant experience being known, or it's an unpleasant experience known. It's an ambiguous experience being known. It's an experience of the body being known, or an experience of the mind being known. It's something that we generally call external that's being known or something we refer to as internal being known. But it's something being known. It's this experience, this impact, this touching of the sensitive heart is being known. There's something about developing this understanding and taking refuge returning again and again to this understanding, oh, this is being known. Now it's like this. This is being known. And to be interested in the attitude and the way, like the coloring of that mind that's knowing, it's like this now. In a way, what we're doing is we're starting to take responsibility for that coloring of awareness. This is how we purify the mind, stabilize the mind. We're uncovering a way, like a refuge, being aware, it's like this, and realizing that a lot of the attitudes that just are there, like we're impatient or bored, or we have a lot of doubt that this is going to help, But those qualities that are there as we're relating to the present moment, knowing the present moment, they can also be known. Oh, what else is here? Oh, there's boredom here. And that boredom is like this. It's just another experience. This attitude of boredom is being known. This dullness of mind, which is common on the first couple days of retreat, this heaviness of mind is being known. It's like this. It's just this body-mind experience. Maybe it's more body or maybe it's more mental. But it's just this body or mind experience being known. And one of the biggest obstacles is the lack of faith that this is useful, that this is transforming. And so we never get direct results of how transforming it is because we don't put in the we're not inspired to put in the kind of effort to keep coming back to it. I remember, it's hard to forget this uh, time I've heard, and he said it a couple of the retreats I've been on with Saida Utejaniya. So it's a common thing he says one way or another at the end of a retreat. But this one time in particular was so poignant. And it was a 14-day retreat with Saida at uh, Spirit Rock 
uh, a couple years ago, and he just said that, uh, you know, I can't remember the exact words, but something that, uh, the thing that really affects his heart in terms of being a teacher, teaching these teachings of the Buddha, is that if people really understood the value of awareness practice, they would put in the effort, this very specific, relaxed effort, this continuous, or sometimes we, or often we use the word persistent effort. So not like a big effort and then we got to rest because it was overwhelming, but just being really interested in remembering that this is being known, remembering to recognize this experience of the body or mind is this being known and really realizing it's a little wisdom move each moment of awareness a little wisdom move that understands it's an experience being known it's kind of a mystery because we don't really understand the knowing but it's clearly happening right so it's uh, we're just aiming toward that which diffuses a lot of the mind's habit to react to the particulars of the object. I like the object, I don't like the object. And this is so much of the torment we experience, is we're basically living at the level of our likes and dislikes. It's like we sink into that place, and it's a stressful place to be living and basically obsessed with likes and dislikes. And sometimes, you know, through efforts, in that world of likes and dislikes, we can manage to have mostly likes and fewer dislikes. And it feels like we've won. But it never ends, right? It's like you might have some likes, like while you're walking through the line, you know, food line, that is. And, oh, yeah, it's like a world of delight. But it ends. You know, we've eaten as much as we feel like eating and now we're in the world of dominated by dislikes, maybe, whatever that might be for you. So there's a way, in, and the way isn't about managing likes and dislikes or imagining being a world where it's only likes and no dislikes. It's really, it's kind of a transcendence in a way where we're recognizing, we're doing this wisdom move, whether it's a time when there are a lot of likes or a time when there are a lot of dislikes. And that's just nature, you know, the liking and disliking. It's really counterproductive to be judgmental about the mind liking or disliking. That's just what the mind has been conditioned to do, you know. But there's this wisdom move where we train the mind to recognize that the liking and disliking and the seeing of the object and the touching the object, it's something being known. It's something being known. This is being known. This is being known. And it's a dharma alchemy that it's hard to explain in words, but it's really available for each of us, and I'm sure most of us, maybe all of us, many times, have got a little flavor, that taste of freedom. That's why this well-known book by Thich Nhat Hanh has such a provocative title. One of his earlier books, some of you know him, he's a very well-known Vietnamese Buddhist monk and author of many, many books. In Vietnam, there that sort of, I think Thich Nhat Hanh even calls it the four-school Buddhism because of just of geography. There, they've been a, the Buddhism there is affected by Pure Land and Zen and Mahayana and Theravada, the kind of practice that Kamala and I teach out of. And um, so, what was I going to say about Thich Nhat Hanh? Oh, yeah, thank you. Miracle of mindfulness. And, uh, you know, and it's, it's a little, you know, our, we're, I guess we've been conditioned to reject that something as simple 
as being aware or being mindfully aware. You know, it sounds a little bit too much like magic or, you know, somebody's selling us something that's false or, you know, overselling something. But, you know, in, in, in any sort of transformational process, the means need to be related to the ends, right? So if this is a practice of freedom, then the main instrument, the main means in moving toward freedom needs to have the flavor of freedom. So we get a sense of this when we pay attention to this, what we call mindful awareness, this remembering. It's really important to notice that the effort of uh, mindfulness, of awareness, is to remember that this experience is being known. So remembering is a big part of it. Just like the biggest obstacle is forgetting, right? We forget that what we're doing here. We forget even that we're on a retreat and we get lost in some activity, whatever it is, clipping our fingernails or brushing our teeth. And of course, any of those activities could just as easily be a moment where the mind remembers, oh, this experience is being known. It's like this now. The pleasantness of this experience or the unpleasantness of this experience is something being known. And the object, like that it's pleasant or that it's unpleasant or that it's neutral, is relatively unimportant compared to the fact that recognition, the wisdom that understands, it's this being known. It's this being known, it's this being known. Because in that recognition is a little taste of freedom that the path moves the mind toward or opens the mind to. This understanding that, I mean, the the way the Buddha talks about suffering is this enmeshment, right? The mind is somehow confused by the appearance of experiences. You know, experiences arise, they appear and are being known, but an ignorant mind, a mind without wisdom, is confused by the arising of experiences. So it gets identified or gets attached to the experiences that are coming and going. And this process of attachment, you know, has these qualities or recognizable um, colorings, I guess you could say, like attachment or wanting, sense desire, ill will, pushing something away, not wanting something to happen, dullness, restlessness, and doubt. And the Buddha has really graphic, creative ways of describing these hindrances and that the trick is, right, because it's always about feeding and starving, like what seeds we're planting, what seeds we're watering. So if we can't simply leave the experience alone, we can loosen the mind's attachment by shifting what we're paying attention to. So we have two moves when our mind feels burdened, wrapped up, you know, enveloped, like the vines envelop the big trees. Right? The first move is the basic move of our practice. It's just this being known. And as Kamala was saying this morning, and I think uh, later today, when she was answering questions about practice, We're really interested in moving in the direction of an awareness-oriented practice instead of an object-oriented practice where we might, like another practices, really direct the attention back to an object like the walking or the breathing. And we'll need to do that at times because it can be very stabilizing 
It can help collect the energy of the mind, gather the energy of the mind. So it's not like it's bad to turn the attention to objects of experience, especially objects of experience that the mind can connect with and return to and connect, return, and have that basic continuity. And to do that, then the mind has to let go of distraction, right? So we do use object-oriented practice as a way of putting aside wandering mind, distraction, obsessive thinking about this and that, discursive thinking, because, oh, I'm just feeling the breath coming in. I'm just feeling the breath going out. I'm just returning to the experience of hearing, hearing. Or whatever objects that we use to help stabilize awareness. But as as the mind appears, feels, is more stable, more clear, more relaxed, then it's quite natural and appropriate for the mind to begin to be interested that experiences are being known. It's just this being known. And less interested in the particular object and more interested in that it's being known. Then in terms of the hindrances, it's just important to recognize what gets in the way. And it's a really useful list, the five hindrances. So I mentioned these already, just sense desire, ill will, dullness, sleepiness, heaviness of mind, restlessness, remorse, worrying, and doubt, right? So we have these five. And remember, we can just go right to our basic practice, which is to realize, like if we're caught up in wanting something, oh, this is wanting, this experience of wanting is something being known. And if there's enough momentum... You can go in one moment from being identified with the wanting in that bubble, in that, you know, the image the Buddha uses for wanting is being in debt or like a forest pool that's colored with dye and you can't, you have no clarity because the dye is so strong, the color is so strong. So when the mind is caught in wanting, it's like that feeling of being in debt. We can go right from that experience of being oppressed by wanting and then we realize, the mind realizes, it's just wanting being known. And there can be a really profound shift from a there being a suffering being to the next moment, there's no suffering being. There's no problem. But not always, right? So just because we recognize the hindrance that's there, their freedom may or may not arise depending on how much momentum the attachment, the identification with the wanting is. I'm sure you've noticed, sometimes you go, oh, that's just wanting. Yeah, and then the mind goes, yeah, I want that. (laughs) (laughs) I know that's wanting. (laughs) And the wanting is here because it would be really good to have that. Or maybe there's even... Some wisdom that understands, like, oh, honey, this is not going to end well. (laughs) But the force of delusion says, I don't really care. (laughs) You know, I'm going to follow this through. I'm going to think about this and getting this and having this. And it's interesting um, because it actually brings up a little bit of that flavor of anatta, the impersonal nature. When we see that these different forces or patterns in the mind, one maybe we'd call unskillful, like the momentum towards identification with wanting, and one we'd call skillful, that part of the mind, that pattern in the mind that understands you know, cause and effect, karma, like what this is going to lead to, how this is already contracting will lead to more contraction, become more sticky, reinforce the habit to do more of this kind of wanting. And to really, when we are in that place where we see the momentum of habit, skillful and unskillful habit, and we realize that neither one is me, they're there, they're doing what 
to sort of have momentum to do. And the one with the most momentum, in a sense, is going to carry the day. So when, when that mindfulness move doesn't liberate the mind from that particular hindrance, then we go about this more persistent work of not feeding that pattern and instead starving it. And the Buddha lays this out in a very interesting way that I thought I'd share with you. And it's just uh, generally under the category of feeding and starving. And this is equally true. I mean, it's, it's basically this first stage of wisdom when we have an, you know, enough continuity of present moment awareness. We just begin to see how the mind operates and how to strengthen wholesome qualities and weaken unwholesome qualities and notice when we're strengthening the unwholesome or weakening the wholesome. Right, So just like we can learn about the karma, cause and effect of the hindrances, we can learn about feeding and starving the wholesome qualities. Like what, do, what can the mind do to strengthen loving kindness as a force in the mind? Or what does the mind do to weaken kindness? Because kindness in any given moment has some momentum in our mind, some presence, either weak, feeble, or strong and steady. Same with calm, right? Sometimes calm has a lot of momentum and sometimes it has very little. Well, how does, how can the mind feed, strengthen it? How can the mind undermine or weaken it? And this is a lot of what we're learning But we only learn this feeding and starving when there's some continuity of awareness, right? Because, again, this is so important, it's not so much about controlling our experience. Like, I'm going to get in there and feed, or I'm going to get in there and starve. It's much more, the emphasis is much more in the observing of the feeding and the starving, basically reading or comprehending the conditional nature of the wholesome and unwholesome qualities of mind, how things come to be. This is the question we want to be interested in when we're really tied up in knots. The appropriate question is, how has this come to be? How is the mind in this moment feeding, supporting this? What might the mind, how might the mind relate now in a way that undermines the stress, undermines the contraction. So the Buddha says in one of the discourses, I know of no other single thing of such power to cause the arising of a hindrance, if not already arisen, or if already arisen, to cause its development and increase as the thought of, and then he goes for each, you know, of the hindrances. So just imagine sense desire, wanting something. So if wanting is already present, or let's say it's not present, what would the mind need to pay attention to, to either bring wanting into the mind, strengthen it, or if it's already there, to make it stronger, more entrenched? So whatever it is, maybe... The wanting has to do with being in your bed tonight, right? Oh, it would be nice to go to bed tonight. Often, the end of the first day of the retreat, you know, it's like the body and mind both are ready for rest. And so maybe that image, that, you know, thought of the bed and the clock ticking closer to 9.30 or whatever. So... What would strengthen that desire, that wanting? Paying attention to what, right? Paying attention to the warmth of the bed, the softness of the bed, right? So bringing certain things to mind, right? The thoughts of the pleasantness of it, the beauty of it, the joyfulness of it, that increases the desire. But as the Buddha teaches, You know, sense experience are neither beautiful nor non-beautiful. They're just what they are, right? 
even the pleasantness of going to bed will just be pleasantness. Right? So the Buddha is not saying that going to bed after the first day of a retreat isn't pleasant. He would say something like, yeah, but it's just pleasantness being known. So by, by not giving attention to the aspect of that experience, the appearance that's really juicy, really attractive, but bringing a different point of view, a different facet of that to mind. Like one of the interesting things about going to bed is it's really comfortable for a while and then it, you know, then it's not special. It's like those first moments. And even the first moments, like when you're in bed, the few moments right before you're in bed are actually in some way more juicy than when you get in the bed. I mean, it's just true. It's not just about going to bed at night. It's just generally true with sense experience that the anticipation is more interesting, more juicy for the mind than the experience itself. And we know that whatever it is, it's just what it is, and it will come and go like everything does come and go. And we've had that experience actually quite a bit, crawling to bed at night. Right? It hasn't really changed things in a big way. Still, I'll enjoy those first moments. But I also, my mind also can bring to mind, yeah, but it's just going to be that experience being known. Which doesn't mean it's a bad or a painful or an ugly experience. It just means it's what it is. It's something being known. And it sort of loses its sheen, its seductive nature. And we have to really work it. You know, and because some of these wanting storms that come on, especially on retreat, are very seductive. The mind, you know, because of the simplicity of the environment and the mind being bored or whatever, it can really want to dig in to these wanting storms, planning this, becoming that. And so if a moment of awareness isn't enough to break the spell, to liberate the mind from that prison, that contracted state, then you have to really work at what the mind is tuning into. Because what the mind pays attention to really matters. And just that, you can just drop this question in. You know, is the mind feeding this storm? Or is the mind weakening this storm? What can the mind pay attention to that will undermine the seductiveness, the attractiveness, the stickiness of this wanting storm? Of course, it's exactly the same with an anger storm, a rage storm, a resentment storm, which just as likely to arise. Or being caught in that, lost in a kind of fuzz of heaviness, sleepiness or the manic buzz of restlessness, worry, or the sort of circling of doubt, skeptical doubt. So, you know, with ill will, you know how this is when, when somebody's really, the thought of somebody, the thought of what they said to me or did to me is really strong. We know when we're in that storm, what the attention wants to attend to. We want to go right to that image, that memory of that person being a fool or being bad, right? And then there's a feeling, a charge, an emotional charge, an unpleasant feeling. And with that unpleasant feeling, we bring that image to mind again. And that's how we feed that rage or anger storm. It's not personal, but it has its own coherence, right? It's to be respected because of the natural feedback mechanism in these things. It's like there's nothing inherently evil about these vines in the tropics or about birds eating the berries and pooping in the trees or the nature of the vine to drop its roots and the nature of the vine to envelop the trunk of the tree. It's not like you know, evil. It's just nature. 
But still, if we're a tree looking for well-being, it behooves us to learn about the nature of these vines that tend to envelop and take over the mind or take over the tree in that case. So with anger, we can really notice like, oh, look at the mind. Here it is again. It's generated this image. It's brought up this memory. It's focusing on this bit, this picture, this mental image. And then that generates this. That's the cause for this strong feeling. And the strong feeling is the creates the urge to one more time think that, remember that, bring that image back up. And this is the engine. And this engine is driving me, driving the heart, body, mind, right to hell, basically. Right? Things are getting really tight. And so, some of you already know this, but the antidote then is loving kindness. And not so much loving kindness for the person that we're really angry at, which would be often a stretch, it doesn't really matter because loving kindness is that experience of including as opposed to hate or anger is that experience of excluding. So even just realizing that I care about how painful this is, being angry, right? My heart has shifted gears. Now my heart, my mind, is in, a, is in a mode of including. I'm including the fact that this is difficult, being angry. Or whatever it is, you could, you could have an appreciation of the big trees. You could have the sense that if it's difficult for me, it's probably difficult for some of the other retreatants. But whatever that kindness move is, you'll see that it doesn't coexist with the anger, the quality of anger, which is to exclude, to push away, to reject. But any kind of love, compassion, kindness, appreciation, its very nature is including, and like this belongs. I can say yes to this. You see, so it's a different way the mind is relating. So it interrupts the feeding of the rage or the ill will. And you'll see by just studying each of the hindrances, you'll see how it works because it's lawful. Things just don't happen. Things unfold lawfully. So when anger gets ahead of steam or when doubt gets ahead of steam or sleepiness assuming it's not just because you're sleep-deprived, but when your mind is using sleepiness and dullness as a way of not being present, then that means the mind is feeding it in some way. That kind of dullness can't be there or that kind of restlessness can't be there if the causes aren't there. Right? There have, in this world, if something is arising, there are causes for it. And often we find the mind is involved in the causes. But that's okay because the mind can also be uh, involved in the causes for it to go away, for it to be abandoned. And as we get close to ending this uh, talk, one of the biggest, most useful moves to starve the hindrances and to feed the wholesome qualities factors of awakening like persistence, like joy, like calm, like stability of mind and equanimity and investigation is mindfulness. So instead of, uh, you know, memorizing like how do you feed doubt? How do you starve doubt? You know, mindfulness, one of the images the Buddha uses is mindfulness When mindfulness is there, all of its good, wholesome friends gather, right? Just try to have a mind full of unwholesome qualities and be clearly, fully mindful. It doesn't work, you know. All of a sudden, compassion shows up and says, oh, 
you sure you want to be involved with these other qualities here? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I really care about you, and yes. I don't think you should be hanging out with these friends <laughs> or these visitors. Maybe not friends. We could be friendly to them, even though they're not wholesome. So we can see this about the, uh, you know, working with the hindrances that because they're lawful, it's something that we can master. And it's such an empowering thing. Because even when we're totally being pushed around because of the momentum of some habit of restlessness or anger or wanting, it doesn't matter if it's like we're totally out of our league for whatever reason, you know, one of those perfect waves and there's just a big monster in our heart, in our mind, and it's got a lot of momentum because we understand that we're in it for the long haul and we know that this is lawful. So it doesn't matter how long it takes. We just, you know, we just sort of do the work. And sometimes when we're really overwhelmed, like it has a lot more momentum than the momentum of awareness, then all we're doing is slowing down the feeding of it. The Buddha has a really powerful analogy. And sometimes this discourse is called 40 cartloads of timber. I think one translator translated the title. He says, you know, you can imagine 40 big carts of logs burning And he says, the Buddha says, and if every once in a while a practitioner would throw dry leaves, dry kindling, dry sticks into that fire, what would you expect? Well, we'd expect that fire to continue to blaze for a very long time. That's what the Buddha says. Well, maybe, you know, you stop putting in as much. Well, that's a step in the right direction. Or maybe instead of putting in dry wood, you start putting in wet wood. Or maybe you just stop putting in wood. It's still going to burn for a while, but you're patient. You're not freaking out that it's still burning because you understand cause and effect. And this is really useful because we're dragging along a lot of habit energy about wanting, about ill will, habits of dullness, habits of restlessness, habits of doubting, And these habits aren't going to disappear anytime soon. But we can feel quite empowered understanding the conditional nature and really understanding the power of awareness. I mean, our basic practice is to relax. Ajahn Amaro, a very well-known British Buddhist monk, used to be the abbot of the monastery in Northern California, Abhayagiri, but now is... uh, the abbot of Amaravati in England, since Ajahn Sabeda retired. And uh, he had a very simple way of summing up the practice in just one or two lines. He said, allow your body to find its natural ease. Allow the mind, as best you can, to find its natural ease. And then just stay alert to whatever arises to disturb that ease of the body and mind. Right, And then when when something inevitably disturbs the ease as you're walking or sitting or going about your daily activities, then we always start with the first move, which is this is being known. This experience, this disturbance, it's like this now, and it's this experience being known. It's just this being known. But if we find over and over again that in a sense, the mind is falling in to the seductiveness of that experience and feeding it, then we bring up what we've learned feeds and starves this, right? And if we have no clue, we just learn through trial and error. Okay, I don't know much, but this, this is heavy. This state is a heavy, unpleasant state that I'm caught in. Sometimes we don't even realize that. It's like we're drowning, but we don't realize we're drowning. And then we sort of come to and realize, my mind is overwhelmed. Like I'm totally obsessed with this thing I want. And then we get sucked back in. 
And for a while we forget that. But every once in a while when, when we resurface, that's when we reestablish that whatever this is, this painful, difficult, obsessive state, it has causes. How is the mind relating that's supporting this? What is the mind doing? Okay. How is the greed or the aversion, how is it being fed? What's another way to relate? So the first move always is to recognize it's just this being known. But if that doesn't work, we use the antidote, right? So with aversion, relating and to anything we can with kindness, with greed, looking at the impermanent nature, looking with equanimity, understanding that things come and go, that it's just the pleasantness, that we've had it many times before. When it's something that's, when it's dullness, we, it's interesting, the Buddha talks about how we notice um, the element of putting forth effort, like just the idea of being able to apply ourselves to do something is energizing. And with restlessness, to get interested in calm and steadiness and tranquility. What's settled? And you'll find your own skillful means for balancing the mind and for unhooking. But the the, the uh, quality that we need, right? We need enough present moment awareness to be able to track cause and effect. Like when the mind is relating this way, are we feeding the fire or is the fire going out? That steadiest of mind. I'll finish with this passage from the Buddha. I find it very poignant. The Buddha said, there were people stuck. Oh, this is somebody asking the Buddha. There were people stuck midstream in the terror and the fear of the rush of the river of being. And death and decay overwhelmed them. For their sake, sir, Tell me where to find an island. Tell me where to find, where, tell me where there is solid ground beyond the reach of all this pain. And the Buddha responded to this person, for the sake of those people stuck in the mid- middle of the river of being, overwhelmed by death and decay, I will tell you where to find solid ground. There is an island, an island you cannot go beyond. It is a place of no thingness, a place of non-possession and non-attachment. It is the total end of death and decay. And this is why I call it Nibbana. Or as one translator translates it, unbinding, the letting go. And he ends by saying, there are people who in mindfulness have realized this and are completely cooled here and now. They do not become slaves working for Mara, for death, they cannot fall into its power. Right? Mara is sort of the personification of these hindrances, these wars or these fires that we, the mind falls into again and again. So let's just sit for a few moments, let go of the words. Thanks for listening. 
So we have about 30 minutes for walking practice now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.